Good morning, Woodland. Um, so I just want to follow up, just piggyback on, the, on our update, because I have been serving as your outreach pastor for about a year, and last year I came and said we really want to take care of our on-site partners, and we have a lot of kids connected um, who are going back to school, and they, they're going to lack confidence to start the first day of school. Um, they don't have the resources, and I asked you guys to help us take care of them, and, um, and last year we exceeded our goal, and we were able to take care of everyone who asked for help, and so I just want to say thank you for showing up last year. And if you feel so led, I would be so grateful if you would partner with us to take care of all of our on-site partners' kids. So um, yesterday I heard someone say, talk about back-to-school shopping, and they were really upset about it. They were disappointed that Target set up that beautiful, glorious display of back-to-school supplies so quickly. And I just had to stop and, and say, actually, no, I'm quite happy that they set it up because when I walk in and I see it's so wonderfully displayed, so prominently displayed, it is as if the Lord is meeting me right there in that aisle saying, persevere, daughter. Summer is coming to an end. Uh, Order and sanity will be restored in your home. The kids will get back to reading and writing and arithmeticing. Not because I don't love having my kids at home. I just am such a J on the Myers-Briggs that I need order and structure, and back to school just gives that right back to me. So it's a wonder I haven't led somebody to the Lord based on the amount of joy that I have in that target aisle. So, <laughs> yesterday I was meeting with some of my friends. Uh, we, we met because we wanted to talk about our kids and pray for our kids. We're all moms of kids of various ages. And one of the main things that we had decided when we wanted to start meeting was we wanted to have a space where we can be honest about our struggles, but also share some of our joys of motherhood and pray for each other. We wanted to be able to hear each other say um, our kids' names as they're praying and know that our kids are not just being loved and cared for by us, but by our community. And so we were together, and our kind of icebreaker first question, prayer question um, was, how was your summer? And how did you feel connected to your kids this summer? And if you didn't feel connected to your kids, if you didn't have a chance to be creative and spend more time with them, what is a prayer that you have so that maybe you can do that some more in the future? And we went around the table, and one of my friends was talking about how her and her daughter are baking, and I'm like, girl, why didn't you bring snacks today? What? And then another one of my friends was talking about taking her kids on a hike and how they spent a lot of time out hiking. And then another friend was talking about taking her toddler to different story times. And then it was my turn. And I have a 16, 13, um, and 12-year-old. And so I, I said, you know what? I have to be honest. This summer, I didn't really feel super connected to my kids the way that I want to. My husband just started a job. We are adjusting to a new schedule. And so uh, we haven't had a whole lot of family time, haven't been able to go on a vacation. Um, and they're teenagers, so they get to say no. And so I have just been feeling really deeply disconnected from them. And so they said, well, if I could have a prayer request about that, I would ask God to help me know how how to be the kind of mom that I was to them when they were little. Because when my kids were younger, like that sweet spot between four and eight, when they're still innocent and precocious and full of wonder, um, I spent so much time with my kids. I was so intentional with my kids. 
I would pay attention to them throughout the school year and recognize the things that they were into, and I would plan a whole summer specifically geared towards one theme. So one year we did all Egyptian, like everything, all things Egypt. And one year we did Greek mythology. But my favorite year was the summer of pirates. It was, it was pirate all the time for the whole summer. I decorated the inside of our living room um, and so my kids would sometimes come down and there would be a, a, a basket that had books in it because I was like, that's our treasure, get it? And I would talk to them and be like, "Ah!" And uh, we brought all of our pillows and all the blankets and we created a living room for it and had a whole marathon of watching the Pirates of the Caribbean. And, um, and we would have meals called shipwreck meals where I would put all of our utensils inside a brown paper bag and shake it up and then tell them a story about how our house is a ship and we are in a shipwreck and all of our utensils got mixed up so they have to reach in and pull one utensil out and they have to eat the whole day with that one utensil. <laughs> I was a really fun mom, right? So I was telling my friends, like, I just, I loved teaching my kids and being with my kids. I loved being immersive, like taking one big idea and just become, just wrap ourselves around it and spend time together meditating on it and having fun with each other and letting them see the quirky fun parts of me and me learning more about them. That just felt like me mothering at my best. And so I asked them, please pray for me. Help me figure out how to say this because they will say no to pirate summer now. So when we think about our series, we are in the middle of a series called Long Story Short. And it is our hope that God can show up for you and help you enter into an immersive, creative space where you can see who God truly is, where you can feel close to God and you can understand who God is and then you can understand who you are to God and then you can know who you are in this world. And so we have been framing this series around two narrative themes in the Bible, the themes of covenant and the theme of kingdom. The DNA of the Bible is encompassed in these two main contexts. And DNA means something is alive. Only living things are, have DNA. And so it is our hope that with this long story short series that the Bible comes alive for you as you look and see the theme of covenant and kingdom throughout the whole of the Bible. So when I think about looking for kingdom and covenant in the Bible, and when I think about my discipleship to Jesus, the very most important thing that I think is, uh, is about my belovedness and who I am to God and the fact that I am deeply loved by God. So when I am conceptualizing kingdom and covenant in my mind, I, I define covenant as our commitment to become the beloved community a people who choose to be in relationship with God and others because of God's example of love for us throughout the whole of Scripture. And so then when I think about kingdom, I define kingdom as the collective and individual responsibility of the beloved community to live in the world as ambassadors of Christ, our King, who is the very embodiment of love. Amen. Now that's a tall order, right? But all through the series, we've been looking for that through the Bible. We've been looking at the lives of Adam and Eve and the prophets and King David. And last week, we spent time with Jesus in the wilderness. And today, we're going to ask ourselves, where do we fit into this narrative? How do we be a part of God's plan of renewal on earth as it is in heaven as we think about our participation with the covenant we have with God, others, and then living out kingdom ethics right where we are? But before I do that, 
As you might could tell, I'm, I'm somebody that really loves to teach. I mean, I turned my house into a pirate ship, y'all. But that comes from my years of being a preschool teacher. I loved teaching little kids. I loved their wonder. I loved their awe. I loved their sweet little faces. Oh my gosh. And so what we're going to do before we start looking at how we can live out kingdom and covenant, we are going to come into Ms. Oshida's classroom. And we're going to have circle time. And we're going to go through three songs that I hope that you remember from preschool. So if I were to take my pinky and put it to my thumb, take your pinky and put it to your thumb, and if I were to take my other pinky and put it to my thumb, and I start it, the itsy bitsy spider climbed up the water spout. Down came the rain and washed the spider out. Out came the sun and dried up all the rain. And the itsy bitsy spider climbed up the spout again. Beautiful, wonderful, my friends. Okay, so if I said, get your stars up, get your stars up, where are your stars? And I said, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky. Beautiful, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. You are all stars to me, my friends. All right. And what if I said, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Poor Humpty, he's not a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> okay, so like, <laughs> so then I taught preschool. I didn't sing these songs just because I have a little bit of Barney in me and want to be goofy <laughs> for, for preschoolers. No, I taught them these songs because these songs help them take big ideas of a world that felt so big to them and they felt so small in and made it more accessible to them. When I told them about the itsy bitsy spider, I said, don't worry, friends, the sun will always come out and never give up. Even if we make a mistake, even if we fell, we never give up because the itsy bitsy spider climbed up the water spout. And then if I told them, if I sat with them and I said, okay, my friends, put your stars up and we sing twinkle, twinkle, I would remind them that we live in a beautiful world and maybe that night go outside and look for the stars. And then when I would teach them about Humpty Dumpty, I would say, friends, you are not hard-boiled eggs. Please be safe. Do not run in the playground. But just like me, as a fallible, energetic, young preschool teacher, wanting to make these big ideas accessible to my, my students, Jesus looks at us way more brilliant, way more intentional, way more strategic. And he says, I want to take this big idea of kingdom, and I want to take this big idea of covenant that I am asking you to participate into, and I want to make it small and accessible for you. I want to give you something that you can say over and over again that when you think about it and it comes to mind, you are reminded who you are in covenant with and what does it mean to live out your kingdom ethics. So Jesus gave us something to tie his huge, big, beautiful idea 
big message, huge mission, and give it to us in a small, accessible way. So if I were to start with you, my friends, and say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, how would you continue? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So that is what we're going to look at today, my friends. We are going to look at how, how the Lord's Prayer gives us what we need to live out kingdom and covenant right in our midst. Jesus is my favorite teacher. I love Jesus because he was so thoughtful and he was so creative and he was such an educator. Jesus' life, his teaching, his actions, his choices, his practices was a kingdom pedagogy. It was his way of teaching us how to walk in the kingdom way. And Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer so that we can say, so that we can know what it looks like to be kingdom people. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, we see the themes of covenant and kingdom woven throughout it. It begins with the idea that we are in co- who are we are in covenant with, and it grounds us in that. And then there are petitions that follow that ask God to help us live in his kingdom way. And then it closes with a reaffirmation of how kingdom and covenant together will create, uh, will move the mission of God forward and will endure. But I didn't always think that the Lord's Prayer was this powerful tool in my spiritual formation. I come from a background that was very resistant to written prayers. You know, I can come up with my own words, thank you. And by the way, I have the spirit. So I don't need your old ancient prayers. Thank you very much. And so I really didn't pay attention to any kind of prayers, even if it was a prayer from Jesus. I thought, well, it's a good idea. It's not really something that I need to do. It's just part of scripture. But this whole series is asking us to look at scripture as a way for our faith to come alive. So if this is in scripture and it's a, it's a tool for us to use in our spiritual formation so that it comes alive, then we as kingdom people need to spend some time looking at it and maybe even praying it. And so I realized this was important for me because I, I hit a season where my prayers weren't enough. I felt like I was always whining to God, and I was getting so tired of all of my complaints. And I felt like my prayers were just bouncing off the walls or or flat. They weren't going anywhere or doing anything. I explained away anything good that happened in my life. I didn't see how my prayer life helped anything that I was doing. And so I kind of just gave up on the rhythm of regular prayer. Of course, I prayed with others, and I prayed at churches. I prayed in church. But my own, just looking at prayer as a way for me to authentically connect with God, that just wasn't happening for me. So we were in Boston around this time, and a friend of ours invited us to visit his church. And so we showed up, and it was a church that that really put a high value in liturgy and prayers. And and I walk in, and I look, and, and the very first thing that's on the screen for us to do is the Lord's Prayer. And I'm like, sure, honor my friend. He's invited us. And so I 
Start to read the words. And as I'm listening to others say the Lord's Prayer in translations and that mean and matter to them that they've learned it, and I'm hearing friends say the Lord's Prayer in different languages, their heart languages, and I am hearing myself say these words that Jesus gave us, something came alive in me. I started to see that these words were not just rote words that Jesus said are a good idea for kingdom people. He is saying these words are foundational for you in reaffirming your covenant and knowing what your kingdom mission is. So I began practicing saying the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis because the Lord's Prayer is Jesus's own creative and kingdom-focused practice that he gave us so that we can grow in our kingdom literacy. By praying the Lord's Prayer regularly, we reinforce the values of the kingdom of God in our hearts so that we can live faithfully into our covenant. Like I said, it's Jesus' way of taking the big idea of the kingdom and making it really practical for us so that we can live out our Christian vocation as kingdom ambassadors. It's interesting that the Lord's Prayer is found in the book of Matthew. Because uh, Matthew's main goal in his gospel is to help us see how Jesus is the embodiment of the Messiah. How Jesus is Emmanuel. He lives out this kingdom way. And as he draws people to him, he's drawing them to learn and listen and look at him because he is willing to do it himself. To show us how to live. And so all throughout the book of Matthew, we see Jesus talking and, and ministering and living this kingdom way. But towards the beginning, we get the Lord's Prayer. One of my favorite scholars said this was actually a strategic act on Jesus as a, as a rabbi, as a teacher, because he gave them the words. He kind of gave them the lay of the land. This is where we're going in my ministry. And then he lived it out every single day. He taught it to them all the way to the cross and then the resurrection. And so what we're going to do today is we are going to look at the Lord's Prayer and we're going to look um, at a few snapshots throughout the life of ministry, of Jesus's ministry, so that we can see kind of almost like maybe how the disciples experienced it. They learned the Lord's Prayer, but it was in their minds as they were ministering next to Jesus. And it just started to become real and more real and more relevant as they were watching Jesus live this out. When we think of the Lord's Prayer, it is, uh, it's a prayer that actually helps us embody what Jesus says are the two greatest commandments. In Matthew 22, Jesus says that the greatest commandments are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this, love your neighbor, ask yourself, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So these two commandments are kind of like kingdom and covenant. There are are ways of living out this, this DNA of spiritual life. The Lord's Prayer reminds us of our relationship to God and our responsibility to each other. It is our way of committing to Jesus's greatest commandments. And again, when we regularly pray the Lord's Prayer, we become more aware of the kingdom of God in our midst and are called to live it out. And this is what I learned when I started to pray the Lord's Prayer. You see, when I began to pray Jesus' own words that he crafted to help take the big ideas of kingdom and covenant and make them real to me, I began to see how the Holy Spirit would open up my mind to the love of God and, and, and give me a love for others that I never had. Stories from the Bible where God showed up began to become real to me, like the ways that he loves like a father, and the ways he provided, and the ways he invited people to go on mission with him, the ways that he rescues. 
The Lord's Prayer opened my eyes to see that kingdom and covenant were part of the whole narrative of Scripture. So we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer, but we're not going to, we're going to look at a different translation. We're going to use N.T. Wright's translation from his New Testament, or Kingdom New Testament. And the reason we're going to do this is because N.T. Wright is a, is a leading New Testament scholar. He's written a contemporary translation of the New Testament called the Kingdom New Trust Testament. He's written a commentary that's called um, for, every day, for, uh, for Everyone. But he uses, he takes the Lord's Prayer and he turns it into more relevant and fresh and immersive language so that we have no barriers in understanding and connecting to the Word of God. He looks at the scripture's original Greek and he translates it to natural, to a natural, more readable language for us. And it opens up our eyes to the beauty of the kingdom of God in a new way and gives us a hope and a desire to live out our calling as disciples. So that's what we're going to use for our time together. So let's take a look at it. So N.T. Wright translates the, the Lord's Prayer as, Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. As in heaven, so on earth. Give us today the bread we need now. And forgive us the things we owe. As we too have forgiven what was owed us. Don't bring us into the great trial, but rescue us from evil. So our first line is, Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. And this is basically asking ourselves, who are we praying to? And Jesus is saying, you are praying to the Father in heaven. You are praying to a good Father. You are praying to a Father who deeply loves you, who is tender towards you, and desires to dwell among you. Jesus, Emmanuel, was an actual uh, illustration. He was actually God dwelling among people. So God, Emmanuel, is saying, the Father desires to be with you. That is how much you matter to him. And so when you start to pray, the way you should pray is that you should say the, tr- say the truth about the character of God, that he is a God who desires to be with you. Through the whole of Scripture, we see this, actually. We see Adam and Eve and how God desired to dwell with them in the garden. And then we see the the temple and the importance of the temple to the Israelites and how God desired to dwell with them. And then we see again Jesus, Emmanuel, dwelling with with his disciples, living with his disciples, living out the kingdom way. Then in Revelation, when we when we end, the picture of the world made right, everything brought together, God's rule and reign is that God dwells with us in the new Jerusalem. So when we start our our prayer time. It is important for us to say true things about who God is because Jesus gave us a hint, a look into the character of God. He loves us like a father. And I don't know who needs to know this and hear this because I know that we live in a world that is constantly telling us things about God and giving us doubts about who God is and making us question if we matter to God. But Jesus says, you do matter. You matter. You matter to God as much as a child would matter to their father. And I imagine that when Jesus was sitting with his disciples and he taught them the story of the prodigal son, you know that story. The story of the son who decided to reject his covenant and say, Father, give me the thing that I am owed. And so the father gives him what he's owed and he goes out and he squanders it. 
And when the son comes to himself and he realizes that he's made a huge mistake, that he, that he has truly broken covenant with the father who loves him, he says, maybe I'll go back. And because he loves me so much, he'll accept me back, but he'll accept me back as a servant. So let me go back and let me just ask him if I can just come back home and be a servant because I cannot do this on my own. So the son goes back and he's walking back and he's so prepared so prepared to be received back, but not as a beloved child. And so he's walking, and he has no expectation of being loved, and yet the father, in Jesus' parable, looks and sees the son from afar. And he runs to the son, and he wraps his arms around the son, and he welcomes the son back. And I wonder if as Jesus is talking about this character trait of God, this deep love of God that he has for his children, if they were remembering our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because we honor the name of God when we speak truth about his character, when we paint a picture of God as, as God truly is. And so the very first thing in setting our, our hearts Right, as we're praying the Lord's Prayer, the very first thing is recognizing who we are in covenant with. So the next moves into a bunch of uh, several petitions to help us live out a kingdom way. So the next is, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, uh, as heaven so on earth. So this is basically saying, Lord, let my say-so align with your say-so. May I look for ways to live out your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. May I desire your greatest desire that heaven and earth wouldn't be these separate things, but they would be, as N.T. Wright puts it, a single bond, deeply connected, interwoven, and that as we live it out in our lives, people can see the kingdom of God so, in so, so, such a stark contract to the kingdom of this world, the ways of this world. And so I wonder if when Jesus teaches in Matthew to seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. That Jesus is saying, my way, my kingdom is the way for you to live. I know you live in a world where you're preoccupied and you're worried about different things. I know that you are surrounded by narratives and stories and doubts and distractions. But don't worry about those things. Don't become preoccupied and don't become obsessed with those things. Be obsessed with my kingdom. Let my kingdom way be the thing you focus on first, and I will, I will add those other things to you. Because the very next line that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer points to God's desire to provide for us in this world where we are distracted. Jesus says, give us today the bread we need now. Now, when we think about bread and we think about Jesus, there are several instances in the life of Jesus that may come to mind, like how Jesus calls himself the bread of life, or how Jesus gave the disciples bread at the Lord's Supper. But I wonder, and I imagine, that as Jesus is ministering to others, um, and, and their crowds are growing great, and it's becoming obvious that these people are hungry, that we come upon the story in Matthew where Jesus feeds the large crowd. And I think this is really important for us to sit at and look at, because in Isaiah, we are told that provision and God caring for the needs of the hungry is, is our evidence. It's the thing we should look out for when we are looking for the Messiah. Isaiah 55, 1 says that we will know that the king has come because the king will proclaim, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God cares about our needs. 
God cares about meeting us when we feel poor and when we feel um, in need and when we feel like we're at the end of our rope. God cares if you can't make, make your mortgage. And God cares if you don't have enough money for gas in your car. And God cares if you don't have enough food in your pantry. And God cares when our students go back to school without the supplies they need. God cares about the homelessness. God cares about meeting our physical needs. I say this, and I will always say this, when I talk about how much I love Jesus. I love that Jesus actually had a body. I love that Jesus actually experienced hunger and thirst. I love that Jesus knew what it was like to move in the world and, and have to purchase things and have to find a place to live and have to navigate the harshness of living in our world. I love that because that shows us that we are in covenant with a God who gets it. And because he gets it, he desires to meet our needs. So when we look at the story of Jesus feeding the crowd, I want us to highlight, I want to highlight three things in that story. So the first thing is, so Jesus is with his disciples, and he's teaching the large crowd. And we're going to do a little paraphrase here. So Jesus is teaching the large crowd, and the disciples come to him, and they're like, okay, look, Jesus, that kingdom teaching, that stuff you're doing, good job. So grateful for it. But these people are hungry, and um, we're hungry. So here's what we're going to do. Why don't we just take a little lunch break? You know, just send them off. They can get their bread. We get our bread. We have a little break, and then we'll all come, to get back, come back together, and we'll get right back to your kingdom mission. Sound good, Jesus? Let's send the people away. And Jesus turns to them and says, why don't you feed them? And they look around, and they say, well, we only have, we don't have very many resources. We only have five loaves and two fish. And so Jesus says, okay, great, give them to me. And Jesus takes them, and he prays over them, and he gives thanks for them, and then he begins to distribute this felt need that this crowd had. And there was enough for everyone to be satisfied and left over. That is the kind of God that we pray to. That is the God that loves us. And that is what we are reminded when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that he desires to meet our felt need. So when we say, give us today the bread we need now, we are saying, God, we know you care about our needs. And we're saying, God, we trust that you will provide those needs. And God, even if you are asking us to be a part of your provision for those needs, we'll do that. That's the kingdom way. But there's one more thing I want us to take a look at. Because this stuck out to me. How did the disciples know that people were hungry? How did they know? I mean, could, I guess thousands of grumbling bellies make a sound. But I wonder if, it's, if there was someone in that group, someone's, who said, I'm hungry, I'm in need. I wonder if somebody pulled the disciples aside and said, we came here because we wanted to hear Jesus and we love being here, but we, we have to go because we don't have any food. And, and when you guys break for food, we don't have anything. And, and so I, we have to go. So part of this prayer is actually inviting us to have the courage to tell others when we are in need. That when we live in covenant with God and we live in covenant with each other, that it is a foregone conclusion that no one goes hungry at God's table. So we will help provide as much as possible when we can. And we will be brave enough to ask if we're the ones in need. All right, so the next one, the next line in this series is a doozy. So, and forgive us the things we owe as we too have forgiven what was owed to us. I am reading this because it's so hard. So let me just change my tone. 
and forgive us the things we owe as we too have forgiven what was owed us. This is a hard one, but this is the bedrock of our kingdom ethic. Forgiveness is so different to the way the world works. The forgiveness of God changes the very foundation of our relationships. It transforms our relationships. It it changes the dynamic in our relationships. There's no longer quid pro quo. There's no longer expectations. We are willing to forgive. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus teaching on forgiveness. Like when he was with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, you know, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord, she answers. And Jesus looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And even Jesus on the cross prayed for forgiveness. As he is being inaugurated king of our upside down kingdom, he is proclaiming forgiveness for those who are crucifying him, who are betraying him. He is saying, my kingdom is a kingdom of self-giving love and forgiveness. And my followers are people of self-giving love and forgiveness. And that is hard. So I wonder when Jesus was teaching the disciples this, because this is a doozy and this is so hard for them to get their brain around. When he was teaching with them in Matthew and they're, you know, trying to understand, okay, you're talking about forgiveness, but we're in a cultural context where there's all these atonements and there's all these things that we have to do in order to truly have been forgiven or offer forgiveness. And you're just saying like, forgive, like you're walking around being like forgiven, forgiven. We don't get that. And so Peter comes to Jesus and he says, okay, Jesus, you are just so like gracious and open with your forgiveness, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be like you, Jesus. Uh, When we forgive, how often should we forgive? I mean, like seven times? Because even for Peter, three times is so great. It's so generous. It's so liberal with his forgiveness. And so he's saying, you know, Jesus, I'm going to be like you. I'm going to forgive seven times. And Jesus says, actually, 70 times seven. It is this idea that we are people who forgive often. We forgive wholly and we forgive first because that is what Jesus did for us. We ask, may we be forgiven. May we forgive as we have been forgiven because Christ forgave us first. In February, um, at the end of January, actually, my husband was very, very sick, and he was in and out of the hospital, and, um, and he was in the hospital one night, and we were in the middle of talking to a doctor, and my mom called, and I sent her call straight to voicemail and continued talking to the doctor. It was like 2 or 3 in the morning, and I said, when I get home and after I get some rest, I'm going to call my mom and check in, because I knew that she was concerned about my husband. And I didn't. I slept and went back and visited my husband. And my husband came home and he was sleeping. And um, we were sleeping together and um, his phone starts ringing. And it's my sister. And my sister normally doesn't call my husband. We're very close. We talk about every day. So my sister calls my husband and my husband looks at his phone and he says, your sister's calling me. And so I look at my phone and my sister had been calling me and texting me. And so I pick up my phone and my sister said, mom went to the hospital for a stomach ache and she had a massive heart attack and she died. And, and so I rushed home 
And I'm the oldest of four, so when you go home and you just like slip right back into that birth order. So I'm, I'm asking everybody, what do we need? And I, and I feel like it's my job in order to honor my mom is to take care of my siblings and to take care of all the needs and clean everyone's houses and cook all the chicken because that's what you do. And, and so I'm sitting with my siblings and we, we find out that my parents didn't have any money saved for end of life uh, expenses. And so um, we had received a small gift to help go towards those expenses. And my husband and I decided to use a good portion of our savings to meet the other expenses. And so I'm sitting at the table with my four siblings and, I ha- and I'm going through a to-do list because to-do lists give me life even in the face of death. And so I'm saying, okay, so we need to pick up red roses. And my sister, I could tell, was just so angry. And I just, I just chalked it up to her being so full of grief. And so I'm like, red roses. She's like, no, white. And I'm like, okay, fine. Um, chocolate cake, no, gingerbread. And I'm like, sure. Uh, a playlist, no, a YouTube video. It was just everything. Everything I said, she had something to say. And so I stop and I look at her and I'm like, what is your problem? And so she said something to me that I had said to her in confidence right after I left college, right after I left the house to go to to college. She looks at me and she says, why do you get to make all the decisions? You don't even live here. You abandoned mom. You didn't care enough to stay around. Why do you get to make all the decisions? And I look at her, and and it was almost as if she had slapped me in the face using the very words that she knew would hurt me in that moment. And I look at her, and I say, you don't mean that, do you? And she goes, yes, I do. And so I look at the to-do list, and I throw my pen down, and I push it at her, and I said, fine, you plan it. And I got in my car and started to drive away. And before I knew it, I found myself at a stall in Sonic, because when you're from the South and you're in pain, Sonic has all the comfort food. <laughs> and so I get my lemonberry slush and I'm sitting there and I'm trying to pray and I can't pray. I'm so sad and I'm so angry and I'm so frustrated because the J in me just wants to get things done. This is the only way I can love my mom well is to get things done for her. And my sister is keeping me from doing it. And so I call my husband, even though he's sick, I call him and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm so mad at her. And so my husband gets really quiet and he says, well, I get that. But your sister's hurting too, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, and you are all dealing with the effects of death. And this wasn't God's plan for you to lose your mom so early. And I was like, I know. And he's like, do you think you can forgive your sister? And I took a slurp of my lemonberry slushy and I said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, just pray on it. Just pray on it. It's like, I think, I think you might need to forgive her. You guys have work to do together. So I finished my lemonberry slushy. And I order one for my sister because that's what big sisters do. And I go back to my sister's house and I, and I walk in and she immediately says, I shouldn't have said that, I'm sorry. I, I can't plan this without you. And I'm like, you should be sorry. <laughs> so we sit down and we begin to plan my mom's funeral. But as I was reflecting on that, as I was trying to, to understand how to forgive, I hadn't forgiven my sister. The only thing that helped me get to a place of forgiving my sister was praying the Lord's Prayer. 
Because what I did as I was finishing that lemonberry slush was I was saying the Lord's Prayer over and over again. And every time I got to the part of forgive, help me to forgive as I have been forgiven, every time I said that, I was thinking of my sister and thinking of those words and letting the love of God and the Spirit heal me and cover that offense. And that is the power of forgiveness. It can transform our hearts. There are a few things I want to highlight about forgiveness because I want you to know that forgiveness is our heart issue. It's our choice. We are releasing others from expectations and anything they have to do to atone us. I did not tell my sister, girl, what you said was wrong, so you owe me 30 lemonberry slushes. This one's free. Now I need 30 more. We release people of those. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. My sister and I still need to sit down and have a hard conversation about why she could take the things she knew would hurt me so deeply and say it to me in a moment where I was in my most pain. So we had to work through some, some, some uh, we had to work to reconciliation. So healthy boundaries and expectations are good for us. And forgiveness requires perseverance, even telling that story. Even though my sister and I have talked about it and talked about it, even telling that story brings up all those feelings. And it is my choice and my decision and my call as a kingdom person to forgive her as I have been forgiven. Okay, so our last line is a little tricky for us. Do not bring us into the great trial, but rescue us from evil. If forgiveness was hard for us to get our brain around, this one feels like it's a bunch of minefields for us because what that sounds like in the traditional way we say it, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, has this picture of God that's going around just putting a sin and temptation all in our past and being like, <laughs> what are they going to do? <laughs> but what we need to do is we need to get that picture of God right out of our mind. Because we started this prayer saying what? That we love a God and we are committing ourselves to a God who wants to live with us and dwell with us and care for us and be with us. And so if that is true, if that is what we have been saying through this whole prayer, highlighting the goodness of the character of God, then this part of the prayer is it can't completely erase everything we've been praying. There has to be something else going on here. So when we look at this, we have to not think about temptation as things that God is putting in our path. We have to think of temptation as this thing that we are bumping up against every single day as we live in this world. That when we start this prayer saying, I'm going to live in covenant with you, God, and I'm going to live as a kingdom person, and I'm going to be in covenant with others, and I'm going to rely on you for my provision, and I'm going to forgive others, and I want your way, your kingdom way to prevail on earth as it is in heaven. When I start to do that, I'm going to get some opposition. The enemy is going to say, oh, really? Watch this. And so... We need to change the way we think about that as asking God, please be with us in that opposition. If we're not ready and we are not strong enough to receive, to, to endure that, protect us. Protect us from the, the opposition of the enemy. But when we enter into that, be with us. Empower us. Guide us. Keep us in community to keep us on our kingdom path. This idea of rethinking the way that we pray that last line of the Lord's Prayer is not new. Actually, the Pope just recently asked if we could maybe consider changing it from lead us not into temptation, but do not let us fall into temptation. And he, he, his reason for that is he says, a father doesn't do that. A father doesn't lead you in temptation. 
The Father helps pull you up immediately when you have been tempted. It is Satan who leads us into temptation, and that is his department. So when we pray this prayer as kingdom people, the Lord's prayer, the prayer that Jesus gave us so we can take the big idea of the kingdom of God and come in and live it right where we are. When we are praying that, we are saying, we know we're going to catch it, but we know that you have us. And we know that you will care for us. So we're calling that out and we're trusting in that. That is part of your desire as our father and our provider, that you will care for us spiritually. So what do we do with all that? Well, I think that for me, when I have integrated the Lord's Prayer into my regular praying life, the kingdom has come alive to me. It doesn't feel like this thing that's outside of my ability to do. It feels like this thing that I am inviting the Holy Spirit to help me live into. And the Lord's Prayer are the words that I pray to help me do that. So I would encourage you, as you are, as you are praying the Lord's Prayer, as you are built, thinking about your walk as a kingdom person, as you are considering how to live out these big ideas of kingdom and covenant right where you are, I would, I would encourage you to consider uh, adapting the Lord's Prayer, adopting it as a part of your regular prayer time. So this is what it looks like for me. I pray the Lord's Prayer while my coffee is brewing in the morning. And then I pray the Lord's Prayer throughout my day as different things happen. Like when I miss my mom so much that I feel it in my guts, I pray our Father who is in heaven because I know that I am deeply loved by the divine parent. And when I was stuck behind a construction truck the other day on Larpenter and I looked over and saw the Philando Castile Memorial, I stretched my hands out and I prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because I so desperately want God's kingdom to enter into that space where violence and racism has hurt people. And when I wake up and make my eggs in the morning, I pray, I pray, give us this day our daily bread as an act of gratitude. And then I say, please help me know who I can provide daily bread for. And when I'm not patient with my kids and I snap at them, I pray, you know, forgive me for my trespasses as I have been forgiven for my trespasses. Or help me to forgive as I have been forgiven. And then when I learn of another mass shooting, and I'm so very angry and so scared to send my kids to school, so scared to be out in the world because I don't know what's going to happen, I pray deliver us from evil. And when I am confident, and I need to know that none of this is in vain, when I need to remind myself who I belong to and why I live out as a kingdom person, I say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We get to use these words, kingdom people. We get to use these words in our prayer lives and it unlocks the kingdom for us and it helps us to live it out right where we are. So I think it's only appropriate for us to stand together and say the Lord's Prayer. And I would invite you to say it in whatever translation and whatever language makes sense for you. Allow this to be your time with the Lord, reaffirming your covenant to him and committing yourself to the kingdom way. So if you will extend your hands as if you're receiving a gift, because this was a gift that our sweet Jesus gave us. Let us pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'd like to invite the prayer team to come up. If you have a need, we would love to pray for you. Uh, We believe that we are praying to a God who deeply loves us and is tender towards us, and he cares about your needs. All right. Go in peace, kingdom people, to love and serve the Lord.